All right, well, welcome everybody to the inaugural uh, episode of the Utopian Idiots podcast. Um, on this first episode, we thought we would just dive into basically the idea behind the podcast, how Utopian Idiots kind of was generated as as a project, um, and some of the kind of the big big ideas uh, that we were thinking about at the time we launched Utopian Idiots. So briefly, I mean, Utopian Idiots was launched uh, when was it? About it just just a little over a year ago, I guess. Uh, and it was by three friends. It was my, myself and then uh, Jonathan Van Maren, who is on this uh, call as well. And then my friend Will Pemberton. Um, and at the time, there was just kind of this confluence of concerns that uh, all three of us had. And I think it was the kind of concern that um, many people are having these days. In fact, almost anyone who has an internet connection and a pulse um, that we were having a hard time focusing, paying attention to the things that we thought mattered the most. Uh, we were uh, deluged with distractions. We felt ourselves fragmented, pulled in many in many directions, um, and losing sight of the things that we intellectually knew we valued the most, and yet often found ourselves having a difficult time actually um, attending to. So before we dive into some of that, um, just going to briefly introduce our, ourselves. Now, um, as anyone who's been following Utopian Idiots for the past year knows, Will, uh, my friend Will, passed away in August. Um, his having terminal cancer was in some ways one of the precipitating things that got us to launch Utopian Idiots. Certainly on my side of the things, my friend Will was a bit of a genius um, and was a, a massive influence on, on my life. Um, on many important things, and uh, I kind of wanted to see if I could pull some writing out of him uh, before he passed away. Uh, it was it seemed fairly clear early on that he was not going to be able to be cured of the cancer, and, and that is indeed what happened. He passed away in August. We'll certainly talk more about Will, um, either in this episode or, or in future episodes. Um, if you do want to find out more about him. If you go to Utopian Idiots, our, our substack, utopianidiots.substack.com, I wrote a lengthy uh, obituary for him, uh, probably too long, but uh, a lot of a lot of my thoughts are, about him are there. But anyway, uh, Jonathan and I are, are left and carrying carrying the torch, as it were. So uh, my name is John Jelsevac. Um I am 37 years old. I am a father of six delightful children. Uh, I live in a small town about an hour northeast of Toronto. I am currently working on a PhD uh, in philosophy with a focus on uh, medieval philosophy, particularly Thomas Aquinas. My dissertation is a study of Thomas Aquinas on memory. I've been doing that for the past four years. Before that, I did a year, uh, a master's degree, a PhD. I'll be going into the last year of the PhD coming up and hoping to defend the dissertation next spring. Um, I spent about a decade before that in social conservative activism, particularly in media. Um, uh, I did a lot of writing, I did a lot of editing, and uh, I also spent a lot of time on things like fundraising and marketing. Um, in fact, uh, eventually most of my job was marketing. I was managing a lot of social media presences, uh, many different properties with hundreds of thousands of followers, and social media kind of became a dominant force in my life for a long time. Um, and with all the, uh, the struggles that that brought, uh, which was also part of the thinking that led to Utopian Idiots. So anyway, that's, that's uh, a bit about me. Jonathan? Yeah, so I live in a, in a small town as well. I live in, in Tilsonburg. I'm married and I've got uh, only two kids with one on the way uh, next month, God willing, if all goes well. Um, actually, uh, I, I work for a pro-life group uh, full-time as communications director. I'm also contributing editor for a, a journal of arts, politics, and history, the European Conservative, which is based out of Vienna. I write for a bunch of other publications as well. And the way I met uh, you, John, actually, uh, some of the listeners will know, is he actually edited me for quite a while. And that led to a lot of different conversations, actually, about um, the culture war and, and what specifically was being defended in the culture war. Because the thing about the culture war is the intent of the culture war is to defend the good life. Uh, but if you're not very, very careful, uh, the culture war can end up being your entire life. 
and you're fighting uh, you know you're fighting what's ahead of you as opposed to protecting and defending what's behind you to to a large degree and so i remember i don't know how many years ago this was now john but actually saying to you that there should be some kind of a calm on the home front that kind of talks about all the things that are being defended right you know the joys of having kids you know just like day-to-day life what i call high drama of ordinary living right the whole point of the culture war is also to create this space inside this hectic culture um, to enjoy the blessings that we've been given to experience gratitude um, to actually um, fully engage with the things that we've, we've we've been given and what we've been on earth to do and when you're fighting the culture war especially now when we're you know in a post-sexual revolution a post uh, a post-christian culture there's always something else to fight that's the, the exhausting thing about it and then for me I remember a lot of the discussions around utopian idiots came, when you you described fragmentation, I think one of the the times when I noticed that uh, I was becoming a Twitter user as opposed to somebody who just went through Twitter for news was the confluence of of Donald Trump, who regularly made news on Twitter, which meant that you could go on Twitter and you could watch global politics change based on what one person was saying, and then you could get a thousand hot takes on what he said within five minutes. And just for me, as a political hack and a political junkie. There was just this massive urge to constantly scroll, to constantly find out what was happening next. And then, of course, there was the pandemic, which put everybody online and kind of exacerbated not only tech addictions and social media obsessions, but also um, the fragmenting of any sort of shared information silo was a big part of it. And for me, at least, I think that for the first six months of the pandemic, because we all experienced for, for often the first time in our lives this total loss of control. Right, life had been turned upside down. We had no idea what was going on and, and, and where this was all headed. So you felt that by consuming massive amounts of information, you were asserting some level of control over what was happening to you, what was happening to your life. And I remember thinking about six months in, all strung out and checking to see what the latest COVID stats were and what the latest news might be about whether or not there was going to be another lockdown or this or that. Like if I put my phone down and I look at my kids and I look outside, I've got a big pen full of chickens. You know, on all of this, my life is pretty amazing if I just put this down. So why am I spending so much time focusing on what I can't control, focusing on the negative as opposed to this? Like, what am I defending anyway? So that's a long-winded way of saying the, the utopian idiots, I think, is just to refocus us on what's being defended when you're fighting in the culture war in the first place. Yeah, and, and uh, as as we were discussing even before this call, this is this is actually something that kind of crosses ideological barriers and ought to cross ideological barriers. This conversation is one of the most fundamental conversations that our culture needs to have. I'm increasingly struck by when I when I look out there and there's a lot of people who are in the business of quote unquote making the world a better place, right? We all we all have our vision of what constitutes, you know, the good life, the the kind of the the just culture, the you know the better world, the more equitable political system, whatever it might be, and that takes many shapes and forms. But I look out there and you see, I mean, if you you see it on social media, but you see it also in the streets. Uh, there's a lot of action. There's a lot of stuff happening, um, and it's not clear to me that a lot of what people think is making the world a better place actually is making the world a better place, and that. Uh, I would apply that as much to kind of people on my own ideological side, people I agree with at the level of ideas that what they're ostensibly fighting for are things that I would like to see come about. Um, as to my ideological foes, I think what happens, and I think social media has kind of uh, put this into overdrive, but I think it, it, it preceded uh, social media, is that we we want we, we replace kind of the urgent duty to make ourselves better to make the world better by making ourselves better first and mm -hmm. foremost and to actually living the kind of life that we think other people ought to live you know what well, we ought to be more kind loving patient charitable you know people we ought to be the kind of people who have strong loving families we ought to be the kind of parents who prioritize being with our children and appreciating our spouse building kind of the strong ties at the familial and personal level as well as kind of the kind of personal transformation that makes us a good neighbor a good father a good a good mother a good sibling a good citizen um 
we replace all those duties um, with with the duty to act. We say, well, no, we it's our duty to get out there, get involved in politics. We need to have the right opinions on social media. We need to express those opinions strongly. And it's true that all of these things can be productive. But when you actually look at the at the fruits of this in, in many respects, a lot of it just seems to be anger, violence. Um, and, and in fact, we often we often seem to judge the level of effectiveness that we're having by how angry people are <laughs> with us uh, or just in general. Have we riled people up? Have we gotten a lot of hot takes? And in order to kind of escape this, this vicious cycle, I think it takes a lot of proactive effort because social media in particular um, and getting it's so easy now for us all to get reactions to our opinions or our views. We push our ideas out there and we get a lot of reactions. We get a lot of support. We get a lot of a, a lot of people coming back at us. And if they're coming back at us, we say, oh, well, you know, we're getting flack, so we must be over the target. Right. We're making a difference here. Um, and it's just easy almost to go into over to autopilot and to let this completely take over mm. your, your brain. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and, and the reason that that's, it's so easy to let that take over is because of the way these platforms are designed to give us these dopamine hits, right? And so we end up as sort of hamsters on the wheel. But the thing about social media, it was Ross Duthat who, who described it in his book, The Decadent Society, as Weimar cosplay, where like not a lot of this necessarily means anything. It's, you know, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. But at the same time, we all feel like we're doing something. Um, I, I've said this often about pro-life work. I had uh, I worked for the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform. What we try to do is actually have one-on-one -on -one conversations on the streets with people. You're engaging with their pain. You're engaging with their circumstances. You're talking to a real person face-to-face. -face. And I remember one of our supporters said, um, you know, have you guys ever thought of, of trying to accrue a massive social media reach to pump up your content that way, right? It's where people are. There's a measure of truth to that, but but the reality is, um, that social media just polarizes. So you can get a million retweets from a pro-life person, uh, from different pro-life people and stuff because it affirms their position. But are you actually changing minds? Are you actually connecting with people on a human level that results in real change? Maybe, maybe sometimes, but there's no evidence that I find good enough to actually engage in that. To go back to, to one of your earlier points about um, the culture war making us uh, us lose focus. I always think of uh, Tiki Chesterton's response to the question sent to him in a letter, what's wrong with the world, that he sent back the letter with a short sentence, I am. Um, and one of the things that I think that we want, and I'm very much guilty of this and, and, and almost constantly, is we want to have big and effective solutions for things that actually just take an enormous amount of time and effort and sacrifice. And the one conversation I always think of is um, because I do, I do a lot of uh, presentations on, on pornography and social media, actually in, in high schools, I did one yesterday, I did one on Monday. Um, and I, I was talking to, to a couple of dads right around my age, you know, had a, had a bunch, I was going to say a bunch of kids your age, but your kids cover pretty much all of the ages. So it's a safe enough thing to say. Um, and then he was saying, like, what filter is good enough to keep us completely, you know, out of our home? You know, what about this and what about that? And everybody's looking for, like, if I just do this, that, that'll take care of it. And I said, like, all that you need to have. You need to have an accountability filter. You need to have, you know, a filter at the router, all that kind of stuff. But I was like, the reality is, in today's culture, the only way that you're actually going to be able to fight the porn industry is not by hosting a rally in front of MindGeek in Montreal, not by signing a petition, you know, to have MindGeek investigated by Parliament, you know, not by posting videos online about how awful MindGeek is. All those things are important. But the reality is, in order to protect your family from MindGeek, you need to spend Saturday afternoons with your kids. You need to spend a ton of time reading to them. You need to have the conversations with them that will lay the foundation for them to come to you with their questions when they're exposed to these sorts of things. You know, you have to develop a sort of relationship that will create the amount of trust necessary to actually be able to talk to your sons about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a husband, um, you know, how you're supposed to treat women. And so there is no filter, there is no petition, there is no law that we can, you know, sign or do or activate that's going to protect our family. Only we can. And that means doing an enormous number of things. It takes an enormous amount of time. And basically, it's the solution is being a good dad. And very often, um, being obsessed, being an activist who's obsessed can preclude 
uh, there were those responsibilities. And, and, I, and I can share the story because I know Troy Newman shared it on my podcast, but he, 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 he when I got married, he actually phoned me up and he told me the story because he said, you know, hopefully you're going to have kids soon and, and just keep this in mind while you're doing pro-life activism. And he said that uh, when he first really understood what abortion was, he had just been married. He actually found out what abortion was on his honeymoon. And this launched him on this path into the into the pro-life movement. You know, he was in, involved with Operation Rescue. He was getting arrested. Um, and I believe it was when their first child was about two years old. You know, he said, I'd come home, scarf down a bike to eat, run back out the door with, you know, a big stack of signs to protest the next political event or pick up the next clinic or or do this or that. And he said, I came home and there was a note on, on the counter for my wife that said, don't make me compete with dead babies for your attention. And she left for a couple of nights to give me time to think about that. Like they have an absolutely phenomenal marriage now. Troy, Troy and his wife are just are just wonderful people. But he told me that to remind me that although abortion is an emergency, although abortion is something that very much demands our attention, I'm, I'm very passionate about that, and I spend one of my other podcasts talking about that almost incessantly, the reality is that it can distract you from the thing you're defending in the first place. Like, you can spend so much time seeking justice for children who've been killed by abortion that you forget that your primary role, actually, as a father, is to take care of and nurture your own children, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I think, you know, in the time around when Utopian Idiots, we, st we were starting it as a project, both of us, you know, we had some lengthy conversations, just kind of terrified looking around us and, and seeing examples of people who had dedicated their lives ostensibly to fighting for a good cause, uh, and some of whom had made an enormous difference in the world, who were influential figures, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, and yet whose children hated them yeah. uh, and whose marriages fell apart. Um, mm -hmm. and, I, and I think we both kind of just shared this instinct um, that if it were a choice for us between saving the culture and saving our families, you know, that it would actually, there's something like you have to, like, it's, it all starts in the home and, and mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a false dichotomy, right? It's a false mm -hmm. dichotomy to think that, well, sometimes you might have to sacrifice kind of the quality of your life. Um, in the most important respects, in respect of like the relationships that are close to you, your capacity to your capacity for joy, your capacity for gratitude, mm -hmm. your, your capacity to be aware of the things in your life that are, are good and, and, and not to allow your awareness of the injustice of the world and the sense of urgency to make it a better world at the systemic level to overwhelm your capacity to be present in the moment to the things that that, that are the whole purpose with for what you're ostensibly fighting you know what else why else are you out there fighting except for the ability of people to live the kind of you know the the simple quiet interior life made up of kind of the ordinary joys um um actually I, this reminds me i was listening to a uh, uh, uh an interview a while ago with with matt frad and peter kreeft um and for those who don't know, you know Matt Frads, he's a Catholic podcaster and Peter Kreeft is a, just kind of a world-renowned philosopher who's written over a hundred books. Um, and they were, they were talking about the end of the, you know, the, the concluding chapter of the Lord of the Rings. So you've had, you know, a thousand and something pages of this, you know, vast battle between good and evil in which, you know, Frodo and Sam and the other members of the, of the, 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 what do they call it? The company. Um, and you know, all oh, of shit. these. Yeah, and 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 all of these, you know, these common soldiers, and you know, have have sacrificed everything. Many have died. Uh, met, you know, Frodo comes back, you know, with a permanent wound, you know, that causes him pain all the time, and so he's setting off to sail away with with the elves. And Sam, the final chapter is Sam coming back home to his wife Rosie, I think is her name, and their and their newborn daughter eleanor if i'm remembering that i think it's eleanor um and there's just kind of this scene this de utterly domestic scene of sam taking eleanor and placing her on his lap and it's just you know this this sense of just small quiet unobtrusive joy that's just there and the whole the whole point is that these thousand plus pages of fighting and suffering and pain we're all there just to make this possible, to make it possible for Sam to be sitting in front of the fire with Eleanor on his lap. And, 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 and you know, Peter Kreef 
telling this, you know, or was it Matt? One of them just kind of started kind of tearing up just speaking about this. Um, but it's so important. You, you were going to speak. Go ahead. No, I just I think it's it's very interesting because because Lord of the Rings is a real minefield in terms of analogies because I would I would say both sides can make the same case because the irony of the culture war is if we're going to use the Lord of the Rings analogy is that you have to leave the Shire sometimes in order to protect it mm-hmm. and you need to do you know you need to you know you do need to fight to make sure that there are those who can live in the Shire because. And I think it's a good analogy for now, too, right? The idea that we can just retreat to our Benedict option Christian communities and raise our kids and and hope to be left alone, like those days are over. We now are in a a post-Christian world, and um, we're not going to be given the right to just raise our kids and live and let live. That's not going to happen. So it's just, it's interesting because the way the, the Lord of the Rings starts is the recognition that the Shire is going to be under attack and that people need to defend the Shire. And the way this, this trilogy ends is, but what all of this was for was exactly as you described, was for Sam to sit down with his wife and his daughter and just enjoy a quiet moment, you know, curtain falls sort of thing. And so where Lord of the Rings is, is, is difficult is because people could take either the beginning or the end. Like, mm-hmm. this is the good life. We should just focus on this and ignore you know, um, you know, the evil forces gathering outside our borders. Um, and somebody can say, no, we must always focus on, on, on the orcs. We must always focus on the evil, as opposed to realizing the only good reason to leave the Shire is so that you can come back to it. Right. Yeah. Well, and uh, one of the ideas that I think will probably come up all the time during these, these podcasts, and I've, I know I've expressed it to you many times, is, the, is like the centrality of paradox as being where sanity is found. And, and for me, this is kind of a, a framing, well, it's just a frame of, of many of my thoughts. And it, co- it comes largely from reading G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy, in which he just points out that, uh, that paradox is, uh, is endemic within many, uh, with, within a lot of Christian doctrines, but also with just in, in general, um, where, where sanity is, is found. And what we're seeing you know, in Lord of the Rings, as in so many things, like as you're saying, it's easy to cherry pick one. So a paradox essentially is, you know, constituted of two propositions that appear contradictory. Uh, so if you don't understand the paradox, it'll sound like a contradiction, but which in fact have some deeper resolution uh, below the surface that you have to go searching for. And you realize that these two things are not actually contradictory. They're, they're, they're um, complementary in some, in some counterintuitive way. Uh, and weak thinkers or shallow thinkers tend to select one or other of the propositions of the paradox and to blow it out of all proportion and to lose sight of the the counterbalancing one. And essentially what you expressed is the paradox of effective activism, uh, which is that you must give everything to the fighting in order to not fight. And if you lose one side of of the paradox, you you end up with something profoundly unhealthy one on the one side you end up with something where uh fighting becomes an end in itself in which case it will never it will never end and in which case all you will end up doing is is uh disturbing your own life uh, and disturbing the lives and mentalities of of others around you who you wish you will end up pulling into your orbit you will look at others and you will say well you are not as anxious and angry and energetic and all consuming all consumingly obsessed with the cause as i am ipso facto you're a coward who is not giving yourself to the fight you're not you're not doing as much as i am doing for the good cause on the other side is the people who snipe from the sidelines mm-hmm. who say well look at me um you guys are just i'm, I'm moderate i'm reasonable and everybody right. who fights is always is always it, 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 i i despise the word tone policing because of, of the people who generally use it now but it is true like uh, there, there are a lot of people now who will look at, you know, any form of pro-life activism and say, "But well, I wouldn't do it this way." And I remember the joke of the the evangelist Dwight L. Moody once when somebody was complaining about the way he preached, and he said, "I'm always open to feedback. How do you uh, how do you preach?" He said, so, "Well, I don't." He said, "Well, I like the way I do it better than the way you don't do it, right?" Like, <laughs> so, so there is there is this sort of thing coming from both sides. But the, the book that really woke me up to this aspect of it is. 
Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very interested in the history of the pro-life movement for obvious reasons, and not just the pro-life movement per se, but this idea that as we're moving into a post-Christian, post-sexual revolution culture for the first time in well over a thousand years, right, the old world has died, the new world has not yet fully manifested itself, and we're in this sort of strange pregnant widow moment, and and what, what post-Christian culture will look like is, is very fascinating, and so I've been reading a lot about the people who formed the first backlash to the sexual revolution. And I dislike what some thinkers like, like, like Rod Dreher, for example, in the Bennett adoption will do where they'll kind of lazily slander the religious right by saying they were, they were too blunt. They were too obnoxious in, in the way they did things without recognizing that a lot of these people were just very normal people who responded to this attack on civilization as they knew and loved it. And yeah, it didn't, they didn't have uh, the same graphic designers and they didn't have the benefit of hindsight that we have. And so often it was really wrong. And they spoke truth as they knew it, and it wasn't always pretty. It was often very middle class and ordinary uh, and unvarnished and unsophisticated. And there's this one book on, on Operation Rescue, which for those of you who don't know, was when you know it was 80,000 arrests over like a nine-year period in the U.S. by people who are sitting outside of abortion clinics. And there's this book called Wrath of Angels, The History of the American Abortion War. And it's written by, by two secular journalists, but, but it was recommended to me by veterans of Operation Rescue who had actually helped lead that movement. And what really struck me is that if you get through the first four or five chapters, you see all of these, these men, family men, married with kids, um, enormously charismatic figures, usually tremendously intelligent and, and, and then extraordinarily dedicated to the cause. And as these obsessions grow, and as they commit themselves to the cause, um, almost without exception, every one of them ended up divorced. Um, and it's it's really, really staggering to, because when you're reading the history of the book, you can actually trace the trajectory. Like this is where it was more important to stay in front of the clinic for four more hours than it was to go home and have dinner with the wife and kids. This is where they started to bond and form really emotionally intimate relationships with other activists that they were not forming uh, with their children at home and they were losing uh, with their spouse who was on the home front and not on the front lines in front of the clinic. I, I, read, I made a whole staff read that book and I made a couple of internships filled with kids read that book too because for me it was like like too much of a good thing is such a stupid cliche way of putting it but but putting, everything needs to be in its place that you can be called to go out in the culture and to save babies from a horrifying death. And because preborn children are our neighbors, I sincerely believe that is an obligation um, in, in this culture. But at the same time, it's it's ordering it's ordering priorities and placing them uh, properly. I haven't fully I haven't thought this through in terms of a unifying theory of what it means to be a good activist, except that I read the cautionary tales and I know that there are a lot of dangers and pitfalls which aren't recognized um, by, by many, of, many of us who are part of this movement. And, and I understand it too, right? Like I've handled dead babies from dumpsters. Like these are, these are very transformative experiences and not always for the better because um, they're, they're difficult to forget. Uh, but I always go back to just that note that Troy Newman's wife left him, right? Don't make dead babies compete. Don't make us compete with dead babies for your attention. It all kind of, is encapsulated on that note, if that makes sense. Well, I think one of the 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 pitfalls of kind of the activist temperament um, is that there's this there's this intense drive to change things um, in, in in dramatic ways. You you, you become so you, you become so aware of the injustices of society that that becomes kind of the dominant frame of 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 your thinking. Um, and so all your effort goes into changing things. And as a consequence, I think it's very easy to lose sight of what needs, what, what should not be changed. What are the underlying structures of things that actually keep things functioning as they are? And to actually have the respect for those things to, and, and, and the gratitude for those things. And I think one of those things is marriage and family and our children, right? And, and so, we, so it's easy to become so to lose sight of the fact that you know, we, we talk so much, you know, the family is the backbone of, of society. Well, what does that mean? The backbone, you know, it means it's the thing that keeps the whole thing standing upright, that keeps it moving, moving forward, you know, and, and family, the, the family is not some vast institution that needs to be 
to be reformed. It, it, it's it's a small. It is it's our families. You, can, you can't you can't save the family with with a capital F. You can only save your family. And if the people who are fighting to save the family aren't able to keep their own families together, uh, then what good are we doing? Now, obviously, it's more complicated than that because because you know. The, each individual marriage and family is different. There's dynamics going to be a play in terms of personalities and, you know, you know, old wounds and stuff like that. So you can't blame, you know, every, every activist whose family falls apart. It's more that's complicated, a, yes. but it still is that simple. Yes. That's the essential principle. Um, and you know, I, I think it's, it, you, you see this a lot as well in kind of religious circles, um, where, you know, the goal becomes to, uh, to transform society according to religious principles. But but Christ clearly didn't come to transform society according to religious principles. He came to save individual souls. His, you know, that's his whole, his whole message. Salvation is, is something that is accomplished at, at the personal level, right? And so if it becomes, if it only becomes a social phenomenon, uh, then it's been turned upside down. Now, obviously, if people... Uh, adhere to and uh you know give their lives over to certain principles on a wide scale if many people do this there mm -hmm. will be social social and political yeah. consequences to that um and so one doesn't want to dismiss that uh or say well there should be no political or social aspect to it but it is to turn the whole thing upside down and i think you know that is at the end of the day any kind of cultural and social transformation is predicated on individual people changing um and i think that's again the paradox is that we, we want social transformation but we can't lose sight that social transformation happens at the individual level and you need to keep your eye on both of those things simultaneously well it's literally what uh what like wendell berry the what title one of wendell berry's books think small mm -hmm. um because it is like it, it is very, very much person by person by person, and and that's that's the only it's I believe one of the only truly effective forms of, of pro life activism as well. So like in terms of at least changing minds, you have to address the person. Um, you need to do this do this one by one, but it's 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 so interesting when when you look at. Well, there's a quote that I actually had written down in one of my notebooks when I just started in pro-life activism in 2011, and, and I'm probably not replicating it perfectly, um, but it was, uh, uh, an immature man wants to die for a noble cause, and a mature man realizes he must live humbly day by day for one. And it was, I wrote that down because in order to research the strategy for the organization I work for, I was spending all of my time in these big time models on Wilberforce, who's one of my absolute heroes. Um, and there was only one of him in, you know, the last thousand years for good reason. He was so extraordinary. But you're spending so much time, uh, you know, reading the histories of great social reformers that, especially, you know, as a young man getting into activism, you inherently, like, you want to emulate that. And I don't even think those aspirations are necessarily wrong. Um, but it was just a reminder that the reality is all of those movements were fueled by thousands of thousands of people who were just attempting to love their neighbor in the simple ways that were presented to them. And one of the things they all did was they went home and they loved their families. Um, and, and that is, you mentioned gratitude too, which I wanted, to, I wanted to get to because Roger Scruton has really shaped my mind on that a lot over the last five years. And it started actually not with one of his books, but this long form discussion he had with, with Douglas Murray. Um, and it was interesting because Douglas Murray had just successfully defended him from some very defamatory attacks launched on him by some left-wing journalists who were lying about him. And, and Murray starts to, you know, go off and say these brilliantly witty and bitchy things about the people who had come after Scruton. You know, some just absolute grade-A British takedowns. Um, and, and Scruton's like, no, no, let's not, let's not have any of that. And he's, he was so gracious and witty in his own way still. And then he started talking about gratitude. He said, like, the fundamental disposition of conservatism always is gratitude because you'll, if you are not grateful for anything, then what is there to conserve? Mm -hmm. He said these two things cannot survive without each other. So a conservatism that isn't based on gratitude will inevitably wither and die. Because again, yeah, how can you conserve something if you're not grateful for anything? There's obviously nothing you want to conserve. And you've seen this in, in, in a lot of conservative circles over the last five or six years, especially like the, the burn it all down language, right? Um, and it's interesting, here's the, here's the paradox, just at a time when most of us have forgotten how to build, we're advocating burning it all down. And I always wonder, like, have you thought, 
that it might be worse after everything is burned down, right? And and I, I got to interview Roger Scruton once before he passed away. And I remember asking him if there was a moment when he realized he was a conservative. And he said it was, yes, it was when he was studying in Paris during the 1968 riots. And he saw, you know, them tearing down statues and rioting and destroying things. And he said, I just had this overwhelming feeling that I wanted to be on the side of those who defended, preserved. That's who I wanted to be, not with the people uh, who wanted to tear down. And it was because he was grateful for the civilization uh, that he got to be a part of. And, and again, this is a paradox because there are so many things that are sick and wrong about the society. And I write about them three, four, five times a week, right? Um, there are things that need to be fought, that need to be rooted out, that need to be burned, uh, that are awful at the same time. If I look at what you know, like my family's personally gone through. If uh, if um, uh, my firstborn had been born 60 years ago, my wife probably wouldn't have made it. For example, if you start to think just for a moment about what the the mortality rate for for infant children was 70 years ago, even like if you start to look at would I actually have wanted to live, you know, pre 1950? That means okay, take your seven kids means three of them aren't here. It means like once you start working through all of that, there is so much to be grateful for and it's just a, it, it, part of it is a matter of focus you can focus on all of the evil and the you know and the wickedness that's sort of popping up like mushrooms after rain it seems weekly sometimes but in order to stay sane in order to remain grateful in order to attempt to actually exercise gratitude you must look at all of those other things as well and otherwise there will be nothing for you to defend and nothing for you to live for yeah, well, the, re the revolutionary impulse is something that feels uh, very productive for those who are under its sway, but rarely ends with anything else but for bloodshed and destruction, because the revolutionary impulse is predicated upon a lack of respect and a lack of gratitude for what there actually is that's worth preserving. If, <laughs> if it's a matter of just burn everything down and then, well, then after that, the building will take care of itself. Well, as anyone who's either burned something down or attempted to build anything knows the building is the thing that takes far more time and effort and you know you mentioned the idea that there's there's you know i i think about i'm i'm more and more convinced of this by the day that there is a kind of courage that is exercised by people on a daily basis that rarely gets any kind of public recognition that is the courage that is keeping our world going you know it, it is the courage to wake up and to do your duty um in a in a in an extraordinary way uh, every single day and there's a there's you know this quote that's attributed to mother Teresa, which i was just looking it up recently apparently she didn't actually say it but it it captures the spirit of many things that she did she did say which is so you want to save the world well go home and love your family i um, thought she did say that uh, apparently not according to an article I was, I was reading, but I don't know, I, who, who knows? even if she didn't, um, it, I, I think there's, you know, more truth to that than we generally acknowledge. And there are people, you know, if, if your initial reaction to that is, no, no, that doesn't work. We need to save the world through concerted um, action, you know, well, if that or if that sounds cowardly to you, I think, you know, it's time to step back and take a pause and say, well, wait a minute, what am I? fighting for it. You know, there's that famous exchange between William Roper and, and Sir Thomas More in A Man for All Seasons, um, in which, um, uh, you know, William Roper, uh, to Thomas More's, uh, uh, what is it, uh, son-in-law, wants to go after, what is it, who is it he's trying to take down? I forget the character, the individual he's trying to take down. But basically, Thomas More says, well, no, we can't do that because the law is the laws wouldn't allow us to do it in that way. And William Roper says, so now you give the, de the devil the benefit of law. Thomas More responds, yes, what would you do? What would you do? Cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? William Roper, yes, I'd cut down every law in England to do that. Thomas More responds, oh, and when the last law was down and the devil turned round on you, where would you hide, Roper, the laws all being flat? This country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast, man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down and you're just the man to do it, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? Yes, I'd give the devil benefit of the law for my own safety's sake. And again, what Thomas More is essentially expressing here is gratitude for the laws that protect justice, even if in individual cases, 
it could be more productive to tear the laws down and just go straight for the jugular of whichever enemy you're going for. Well, in an individual circumstance, maybe that makes sense. You could do it. Yeah, forget the law. This guy's so evil, he just needs to go down. But you start doing that, and all of a sudden, those laws that seemed to stand in your way, that seemed so unsexy, that seemed so boring, that seemed to crimp your style, um, once they're gone, the whole bloody thing falls to pieces, and what you get left with is the French Revolution. You get the guillotine, you know? After, after which you get, you know, uh, Robespierre mounting the guillotine himself. Right, exactly. That's that's the way that, that's the way the cycle goes, and so all of this just just to, to make sure because we, we we can talk for four, four and a half hours and, and have, um, I, I think those who may have have actually seen the, the Utopian Aids website thus far might want to know what this has to do with with chickens and fairy tales, um, and lightning <laughs> storms and, and poetry. So all of this and, and we'll talk about this more though is is to say what when you when you, when you first pitched the idea of utopian idiots to me and well i remember you asking me to write an article about chickens so maybe explain the connection between what we're talking about uh in terms of balance uh in terms of defending versus fighting in terms of you know um you know a hierarchy of responsibilities and writing two thousand words about chickens on a substack <laughs> Yeah, well, I think it goes back to something I started saying earlier in this conversation, and I wasn't able to, to finish the point because we went off on one of many inevitable tangents that will be going off on every single one of these conversations. But um, I, think, I think it's easy it, up to a point to be an activist and a warrior, particularly if you have kind of an outgoing personality, because there's so much uh, immediate feedback. As I was saying, you know, you post something on social media, people are angry, people are agreeing with you, you feel like you've changed the world for the better. Well, to escape that cycle, uh, I think takes, for many people, um, it takes a lot of proactive effort to actually escape outside this framing of the world in terms of constant warfare as, and, to, and to actually step out and say, to appreciate and to, to cultivate gratitude and to appreciate the good things that are in, in front of you. And so, yes, uh, Utopian Idiots... You know, we've spent most of this conversation talking about kind of the culture wars and activism and stuff like that. But the goal of Utopian Idiots is actually to spend very little time talking about those things, to proactively step, step outside that framework and to focus our attention on the things that we have that are in our lives or the things that are available to us that are the whole reason we have opinions about politics and, and social issues to begin with. And that is that there, this world, this life, um, is extraordinarily beautiful and meaningful. It's far more beautiful and meaningful than most of us appreciate in most of the moments. Um, and that's a tragedy. If you are a father or a mother and you have children um, and you fail to pay attention to them, because your mind is so consumed with whatever is in the news, whatever you're anxious about, whatever you're worried about, if, if your work, and again, you know, we, we can step completely outside even the framework of, of the social issues and the battle over moral issues and social issues. Um, you know, the, the obsession that many people have for their job, e even if their job has no yeah. mor moral import. Um, whatever it is you're fighting for. Whatever yeah. it is, exactly, <laughs> whatever it is you're fighting for. Um, something that's extrinsic to to the most intimate and and deepest parts of your of your life if that has come to dominate your thinking so that you can no longer appreciate the things that are right in front of your face um then something's off kilter and utopian idiots is basically a proactive effort to to in a way overcorrect the the, the site is dedicated to, to overcorrecting it's the part mm -hmm. it's the part of our of our thinking and our writing where we're overcorrecting where we're completely setting aside for the most part um you know it will creep in from time to time but we, we've been proactively kind of keeping out the culture war issues because um you have chickens tell us about your chickens jonathan first i, I see you're giving me the opening the one thing that we, it needs to be addressed before the introductory issue is over i just want to make sure we do it is where did you get the phrase utopian idiots from yeah so i've been meaning to to, to talk about that for the past 10 minutes okay utopian mm -hmm. idiots um it's actually so it's a stupid name but it actually encapsulates a lot of what we've been talking about. So Utopian Idiots was, was uh, 
mentioned by Will as as a name for it. And he, so I haven't found the actual recording he was listening to, but apparently he was listening to some sort of an interview with Jordan Peterson. And Jordan Peterson mentioned uh, Utopian Idiots. And he was using it in the context of, I think it was, uh, he might have been referring to kind of communist revolutionaries. But I think it, it's, it's, a, it's a phrase that applies across the board to anybody who has a utopian vision of the world. And utopianism... Um, utopianism, this speaks to a lot of what we're talking Utopianism is basically the idea that you can create a perfect world here on Earth. And so it's, the, it's, it's idealism taken to the extreme. Um, and utopianism, it, it, and it, it's predicated on the idea that you can create the perfect world by adjusting the system by some sort of large-scale political or social change that will then usher in, you know, kind of, uh, to use like a Hegelian term or Marxist term, the end of history. There will be no more wars. There will be no more vast, so, you know, socio-political changes because we've brought in the perfect system. The perfect system is what will keep this thing functioning. Um, and I think you and I and Will um, all have utopian tendencies. You know, we, we have visions of what the world ought to look like. We have visions of the good life um, and we pursue it in various ways in our own lives. Now, Will, Will was never on the activist side, but he, he had strong beliefs about uh, about the way, you know, the, the culture should look. And I think the, the name for me captures both sides of the paradox that we've been talking about. On the one hand, I think it's actually important to have utopian tendencies, um, because otherwise uh, you you end up with a kind of cold, kind of dead, uh, real politic. Well, the world is just kind of it, it's a mess. It's a miserable place. We'll never make mm. it be better, and 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 so that leads to kind of a, a defeatism, like yeah, the uh, moral vision of a CIA hitman. Yeah, and so and so. Um, the, the utopian aspect of the paradox keeps you on fire. It keeps you focused on, you know, we, we, there is a better world and we need to move towards it. The idiots side of it reminds you that there is no paradise on earth. And the minute you lose sight of that is the minute that you fall, you fall for the temptation to burn everything down and not to appreciate the good things. So utopian idiots is basically to try to capture that paradox. Yeah, we're all utopians in one way or another, but we're also idiots and, and, and humility um, and, and a kind of realism about the state of the world protects us from, from taking it to the extreme. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, we have, we have high ideals. But we can also laugh at ourselves, as, or we should be laughing at ourselves. <laughs> you should be able to, because that's that's the thing about um, about doing activism as well. So if you don't have a sense of humor, it just you just you, you end up poisoning yourself, right? Because nobody nobody can live angry all the time, and if you do, it's just it 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 ends up first destroying yourself and then mm -hmm. destroying those around you because nobody can be on all the time. And there's always, a, there is a moment always when you, when you first get introduced to horrifying things, if like, for example, if you actually encounter the bodies of actual dead babies, you can't stop talking about it for a long time because you know, chickens seem frivolous when babies are dying, you know, like that, that is, that is sort of the mindset. And there is some truth to that. Um, if you, if you take everything out of its proper context, um, I want to do a whole episode about birds at, at some point, but but even 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 on on the chickens thing briefly, since since you gave me the opening, like <laughs> I, I honestly think that so different people have different simple pleasures. Uh, my wife was unhappy to discover how long the peacocks I just purchased might live. They apparently live up to twenty five years, and they're a year old. <laughs> um, they're very noisy, and apparently um, we're going to have to get used to it. Um, but but like the, like the thing about like so peacocks and, and pheasants especially is that they're completely useless except for the fact that they remind you that these gorgeous birds exist because God thought them up and put them here because because they were good. That's all. Like to have them around, and I've got right, golden pheasants and a, a couple of peacocks. I've got some quail that I'm not eating. They're just really pretty. They're Tibetan Tibetan mountain quail. I, they're just gorgeous, and I think that to um, to to realize that God thought these up in the divine imagination 
just because they were beautiful and put them here just so that we could say that so we could look at them you know because you know because they honor and glorify him and because they're a representation of the divine genius for me for me having those birds is just it's the most relaxing calming thing there is on saturdays i'll literally sit with my kids out by the fence the wire fence we'll just watch the animals walk around and scratch and be themselves and it's it's being grounded in something real, but that's the whole reason the culture war is being fought is so a dad can sit with his kids on a Saturday afternoon in the sunshine and watch a bunch of birds scratch around the dirt. Like that's what I want to do. That, the society that I envision as a great society is one in which we are left alone to do those sorts of things. Um, and so to forget about why chickens are so awesome to have is to forget why we're doing this in the first place. And that might sound really absurd and reductionist, um, but, but that, that is how I see it some days. Yeah, well, we, I think so much, the whole point of Utopian Idiots is to resist the utilitarian impulse that judges everything based upon the extent to which it accomplishes something, to which it produces, mm -hmm. to produces something. Ultimately, uh, human beings are contemplative beings. What separates us from the rest of the world is our capacity to think and to reflect. And it, for me, there's just these moments of joy that come when you're when you're open to it. Joy will not come to you if you're always scrolling Twitter or Facebook or thinking about what comes next or how to make the world a better place. But there's just these moments where you just notice something where your children do something, you know, they, there's, there's these moments of life uh, in a family where you have these experiences of just of harmony, where you're in the room, you're eating dinner, and everybody's just enjoying one another. You know, and you look around and, and the older siblings are taking care of the younger siblings. And the younger siblings are wrestling with the older siblings. and They're all playing together. And the parents, you know, you might be sipping a glass of wine and just looking on and having a nice conversation. It's just like these moments where everything clicks. And you just sit there and you say, this, this is good. This is, this this is, is good. the good old days. Yeah. And we're in them right now. We're, we're in them. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and I was, I'll, I'll finish just with one, one last thing. Now that the weather's the weather's. Uh, turned for the better here lately last week and the week before that i was going out um walking at night uh, you know about 9 30 10 at night i would go i would go out and over the years i've memorized a decent amount of poetry actually i put it all in a document it's over ten thousand words of poetry that i've got memorized um and some of it has gotten rusty in the past little while because i haven't been making the time to kind of re review it in, in my brain so i've been going out i'm just walking at night and the peeper frogs have started doing their thing at, at, at night now um, and just going over some of this poetry in my head, refreshing it. And you get into this spot where you're almost high on words. Like you're just in this internal space. You have, you know, I have some of the greatest poetry ever written in my brain and I'm just going over it word by word as I'm walking. And there's just this sense of like kind of transcendence. It's just like, this is so good. Um, and you know, there's no drugs involved. It's just poetry, which you've taken the time. And it's like, this is a state of mind that isn't producing anything. It's not, you know, I'm not changing anything. I'm just, I'm existing in a state of mind. And this is good. This is intrinsically, I don't need to justify this, you know, by something that it later produces. This is what being a human is in some way. Um, and I think, you know, I think that reaches its kind of its apex in the in the experience of kind of self transcendent prayer, uh, and, and communion with kind of communion with the divine in which we, you know, ultimately step outside of ourselves um, in some it, but you know, that experience of kind of contemplation and joy is available to us every day, all day. Out of pure curiosity. Um, who are the top poets in in that selection in those ten thousand words? Uh, Keats is the one who has I have, mm. I have the most numbers of poems. Let me think in terms of word count, probably. So I'm starting to build back up on my Shakespeare because in in college I did a decent I acted in a number of Shakespeare plays. I was Hamlet in in Hamlet, so I had the entirety of Hamlet memorized at some point, but it it, it goes away. So I'm starting to work back on my Shakespeare. But Keats Keats for me is just kind of the the pinnacle of his his odes are pure perfection. Andrew Clavin just wrote a book called The Truth and Beauty, How the Lives and Works of England's Greatest Poets Point the Way to a Deeper Understanding of the Words of Jesus. And there's a whole chapter on Keats and his odes. Mm, yeah, well, his odes, uh, they're, they're mm -hmm. one of those accomplishments. I mean, he died when he was 
23, 24. Yeah, very, very young. Very, very young. Um, I, I, I suspect if he had lived longer, that he would have been, he would have given Shakespeare a run for his money. There was just a level of genius in, in, in Keats that was just staggering. I mean, Ode to a Nightingale is one of those poems. I've recited it to myself probably thousands of times. I used to recite it as I would go into sleep to help me, help me get to sleep. It was just, um, and he wrote it in an afternoon. It, it would it, it would take me Prince quartered in here. Yeah, it would take me like a single one of those stanzas. I mean, it's a very complex uh, rhythmic and rhyming scheme. Um, and just just a single one of those stanzas, not even of comparable quality, would have taken me days to to try to, you know, and it, it wouldn't have been nearly as good as anything he wrote, uh, just to meet the the rhyme and the meter. And, and he busted how many how many stanzas, what, 10 stanzas, these long, complex stanzas, apparently in an afternoon, just like I, uh, yeah, genius. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but we will talk about poetry in a future episode. Yes, so there's five or six topics we already have lined up for other conversations, including poultry, poetry, uh, and a whole bunch of, of, of other subjects. Wendell Berry, the, the, the great uh, novelist and, and philosopher, will get his own episode. Um, so this, this episode, of course, is to introduce people to the thinking behind it, how it relates to the culture war and how it does not. I, I hadn't thought of, of the framing before we, we talked about it, but the framing of you having to leave the Shire explicitly in order to come back you know and just sit with your wife and kids it's it's a really good a really good bookend just because i've heard tolkien quoted so many times um by, by pro-life activists because it really speaks to, to people of the pro-life movement i remember when i was in ireland um just prior to the the referendum there on the eighth amendment everybody quoted tolkien for, for almost any circumstance whether you're feeling awesome or whether you're feeling despair so i think that's a very neat framing is there anything else from an introductory perspective that, that we need we need to cover. We covered the name. I'm just trying to make sure that everybody who's listening has a good idea of what this is all about, considering how eclectic it's going to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, there was the, the the tagline, which is in our in our logo yes. and elsewhere. Th things things should take a long time, mm -hmm. um, and probably the best way to explain that is just to tell people to go and read the, the first article on Utopian Idiots, mm -hmm. which is which called. Will take a long time. Yeah, which is called things. Things should take things should take a long time. Um, this is this was a phrase that was was used by my college roommate. My college roommate was it was a delightfully eccentric man, um, just such a pleasantly eccentric man. Um, uh, he dressed tended to dress to the nines, smoked a church warden pipe. For those who don't know, a church warden pipe uh, is one of the long ones, like Gandalf smokes mm. um you know listen to, to just the most eclectic kind of music read the most eclectic kind of books but the thing is made it work you know like there's a certain kind of person who goes to college and smokes church warden pipes and the entire time you're like okay can you stop putting on airs whereas with my my roommate paul mm. it, it just made sense you accepted it yeah. like totally yeah. he was he was I just friend like that as well he was just being himself um and so it wasn't uh this highfalutin act or anything like that anyway uh he loved tea and uh especially quality tea and uh, i was the editor of our college journal at one point and i asked him to write an article about tea and buddhism because um i used to come in in the afternoon from class and he'd be sitting in his chair um uh, wearing a, a a red silk dressing gown uh, oh. church, churching, uh, 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 smoking his church warden pipe in the dorm, which of course was against the rules, um, and reading the Dalai Lama while drinking uh, tea. <laughs> and uh, it just amused me so much. I said, well, why don't you write an article about that? And he wrote an article, part of the, the tea part, just describing kind of the rituals and the processes of making quality tea from loose leaf, not using a bag, you know, what's necessary in terms of warming the pot and stuff like that. And basically arguing that modern tea bags are an abomination that destroy the contemplative life. Um, and he just used this phrase, you know, after describing what, what, how tea ought to be prepared, he said, things should take a long time. And that was the full sentence. And I read that sentence and I died laughing because it's just so... Uh, grandiose and sweeping and uncompromising um, in the stance it takes, and and basically, you know, condemning the the totality of modern living with one vast sweep of his hand. Uh, but you know, when you think about it, in terms of the things that matter, most of them take a long time, um, and we want everything to be quick. 
we want to just check our boxes. We want to get entertainment Im immediately. We want to be, we want immediate change. We think, you know, that if we've gone out to a rally or something like that, that we've, we've done our part, you know, um, when in reality, you know, true change is slow. It's quiet. Uh, it's below the surface, true enjoyment, true creativity, you know, so much of we consume entertainment these days, but producing art is something that takes a long time. Uh, and for those who've actually done it, actually just a few weeks ago, I hadn't written poetry in quite a while and I wrote a sonnet for my wife. Um, and I just remembered, you know, getting back into that state of mind of writing poetry. I mean, it demands everything, every ounce of mental power that you have. You can't be distracted when you're writing poetry. You just need to give yourself over completely to the act. It takes a long time, but the actual producing of poetry is more satisfying than consuming most art. Um, it's harder, it's painful in a way, but it's more satisfying. Anyway, so things should take a long time. Um, and so that's definitely another one of the themes that we'll be t discussing. And, and one of them, you know, the idea of, in particular, of creativity, of, of true production of, of good things um, that, and, and even the appreciation of, of good things as well it takes time to cultivate the right mentality. I mean, when I first started reading poetry when I was in my late teens, I had no idea. I, I, I didn't get it. I, I knew I ought to get it, but I didn't get it. But I knew enough to, know, to trust that the greatest minds in history all thought poetry was pretty great. So mm -hmm. if, if I stuck with it, I probably would. Um, it was the same with classical music. You know, I, I kind of just stuck with it. I didn't get it. It didn't move me the same way no, I... my rock music did. Um, I, but I, I kept listening and I found different composers and, and again, cultivating that appreciation took time. And I think you find it in, I, I, I want to write an article for Utopian Idiots at some point called Sex Should Take a Long Time, um, which is not going to be a how-to manual for how to have sex, but it's the idea that, you know, even truly fulfilling sex, which is now one of those things that we just kind of think, you know, you can kind of turn on a tap and get great, great sex, right? Well, that's, that's, that's like one of the lies that has produced perhaps more suffering in the past few decades than almost any other lie, right? You mean the, por you mean the pornographic mindset? The pornographic mindset, because yeah. like, like sex is one of those things. I was going to say there's, there's so many titles put out by very, very stodgy and social conservative and religious sites with sex in the headline recently. And the whole point is to de decry the postmodern state mm. of sexuality, but it's, it, it will never stop slightly amusing, <laughs> amusing <laughs> me to see titles like the one you decided and people are like, what? And it's, it's not cosmopolitan. It's first thing, you know, or, or, or crisis magazine, perhaps more appropriately, but yeah. But I mean, you, you talk to people who, you know, I mean, all the studies are very clear on this, that the people who have the most satisfying sex lives are the people who also have the most stable long term. Who are married and didn't cohabit first are the yeah. two consistent across all data. And the data is clear, clear on this. It's absolutely mm -hmm. cl clear on this. And it, it just makes perfect sense. If you're going to engage in one of the most intimate things that you can do with any other human being in order to have the level of connection and the feeling of safety within that, where you can give yourself over to the experience, you need to have cultivated uh, a, a rock solid, meaningful relationship that goes down deep into the kind of the core of who you are. And so the, the idea that sex is something you just kind of do rather than kind of something that's, it's a, it's a process that it has to be integrated into a lot of long-term effort, you know? Um, and so, yeah, we need to, I wanted to just make one comment on, on things should take a long time. And it's something that I want to write an article about sometime as well, but I haven't fully thought it through, but I've, I've thought that there's, it's interesting because we like our conveniences. Nobody complains about dishwashers or so many other time saving devices that free our time up to actually do other things. Like I have way more time to read in the evening because we can load the dishwasher and turn it on rather than wash the dishes. Right. But one of the things I've always found interesting is if you look at the classics, the books that uh, like children, and, and even adults been reading for generations after generation after generation, the sheer amount of, of space in, for example, uh, Little House on the Prairie by Laura Ingalls Wilder, the whole series, the Little House books, 
roughly 50% of every one of those books isn't traveling across the prairie. It's how they turned butter step by step, Mm -hmm. how Pa made the bullets step by. That's a whole chapter. It's just him making the bullets and dropping them one by one into the bag. A whole chapter on the blacksmith, just watching him with his tools. If you take a Heidi, for example, right? It's, you know, city girl comes to the country, joins the all uncle at the top of the mountain uh, there. And the child story is just watching how things are done step by step. And it's just, and it, a lot of these things just don't exist anymore. And the same thing is true. I think for a lot of the, the great literature, I would consider James Harriet, for example, to be one of the greatest short, short, short story writers of the 20th century. And so much of, of the books are not just his, his brilliant humor and his, his phenomenal phraseology, but also just it, it's veterinary practices and farming practices that no longer exist. And roughly 80% of the chapter will just be describing the process. And so there's something I haven't quite nailed down yet. But in terms of th- um, things should take a long time is there still seems to be an instinct for it because all of the literature I just cited is still wildly popular, selling enormous amounts of books and capturing the hearts and minds of new generations each year after year. Um, even uh, even even James Harriet, they came out with this TV show, All Creatures Great and Small, that they put out on PBS. Um, didn't expect to renew it or anything. And then it was a s- smash runaway hit because this plotting show where they show you these like the details of these different farming things i just remember reading a a review on the guardian when people were like who knew that this is just what people wanted right and and, and people keep on talking about the slower pace of life and so i think that the kinds of literature people gravitate towards completely um underline the sentiment things should take a long time because people might not realize that's what they want but again you nobody's picking up little house in the big woods if they want a fast-paced story (laughs) <laughs> uh, and somehow they're getting through a 15-page chapter in which Pa does one thing. He makes like 17 bullets for his musket. That's all that happens. You know yeah, what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, 100%. 100%. And, and then, you know, we'll eventually do an episode just talking about Wendell Berry. Um, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, I just finished reading Hannah Coulter. And I've told you before that I, uh, you know, I started reading it once and I didn't finish it. Yeah. And, 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 and listening to it recently, I, I totally see why I didn't. Because nothing happens. You know, there's like, no, not really. There's, there's, there's a couple, there's a couple. Except for life. Yeah. Well, it's a the thing. There's, <laughs> there's a couple inflection points where, you know, uh, points of significant change in Hannah's life. Um, mm-hmm. But none of them are extraordinary. They're the same thing that happened to, you know, the same sorts of things that happen to everyone. You know, a loved one dies, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, certainly, you know, the character who dies during World, World War II, well, he was one of, you know, how many millions of young men mm-hmm. who died, how many families and wives were bereft. So Hannah Coulter was just, she's just one among millions. She's no different. Uh, yeah, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna get us off. On yeah, this no, okay, fine. Like, nobody, nobody does the interior life better than Barry that I've ever read. Yeah, like 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 he he puts into words things that you didn't know were true until you read them, and then they're so obvious. But in a way, like that's you're just, he describes a way of being and a way of thinking that 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 should be accessible to everybody. But yeah, don't yeah. want to get too much of that because I, I listened to Hannah Coulter, and then I was, I was just totally stunned that you hadn't liked it the first time. And you did, you said your wife was, um, loved Hannah Coulter as well, right? Yeah, I think I think it might uh, be the closest we've ever actually had to a fight. Uh, <laughs> I finally convinced my wife to start listening to it, and and now everything else is falling by the wayside as she takes long detours in her vehicle and listens to it. <laughs> yeah, well, I I I I was talking to, with Cass about it the, the other day, um, and she had said, you know, because the first time I I had not finished it after she had read it, and she had read it, and she was you know sobbing by the end of it. Um, okay. <laughs> and then I started reading it, and I didn't finish it. I was like, oh well, you know. And she just told me a few days ago. She was like, yeah, I, I was fairly annoyed with you actually. When you... <laughs> and it takes a lot to get my wife wife annoyed. Uh, but anyway, we'll have to come back to that because there's reasons. Yeah. There's a lot to be to be to be said there. But anyway, I think this is a, a good a good first. Good, good. Right good yeah, yeah. You bet. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening in. And uh, we haven't decided exactly how often we're going to be doing this yet. Mm-hmm. But I think some of it depends on how much work I find to be publishing, because Jonathan and I, uh, if we start talking, we can talk for hours, no problem. So there's no, 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 no worries about producing content. Um, in, in fact, I know we've been we've been storing up ideas for a long time now uh, in particular, because, you know, all the ideas that we want to write, we often don't have the time to write. I mean, you know, just trying to write about the 
dozen topics we talked about today would, you know, take tackling one of them takes, you know, half a day or a day to write a half decent article. Some of the articles, you know, they're published on Utopia and it is, yeah, they take a full day's mm-hmm. work. It's, it's hard work writing. Um, so this way we can get some of it out there. Some of the ideas we've been percolating on for a long time. So anyway, thanks. And uh, we'll be back. <laughs>